and welcome to episode 32 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. I hope you've all had a lovely week. I think this is number three now of the weekly ones, so I hope you're all enjoying the fact that these are a little bit more regular. Um, Another little bit of news, started uploading all of these to YouTube, so if you're listening to this and YouTube is a preferred method, or if you know somebody who enjoys listening to things on YouTube, uh, you can go and do that. So if you search All You Need Is Drums, I've made a playlist of all of the episodes I've done so far. It's quite a backlog, really. There's quite a quite a decent collection going on. <laughs> um, and while we're on the subject of YouTube, I've got there's something else I've been doing for a while that you guys may be interested in. So I used to run a night, sort of pre-pandemic, and hopefully it will start again in Leeds called the Hootenanny, which was a house band of sort of session musicians, if you like, that would learn a singer-songwriter's songs and then without rehearsal we would just play them on the night and it made always made for a really special night so I wanted to find a way to capture that at my studio so I thought about doing covers but live to my two-track machine so I've called it the two-track sessions and that's also on my YouTube so all you need is drums and it's two hyphen track sessions um, and the band is called the Hootenanny so we've done uh, lots of cover versions. There, I think there's three there so far, and we've got more to come. I'm making an album of the, these things, and it's all live, one take, straight to the tape machine, then obviously put into the computer and sent to Rare Tone Mastering, who was interviewed on this podcast, Ben Pike. Uh, and yeah, it's really cool. So that you know, warts and all, and I think you might really enjoy that. There's no plugins at all. It's all just going through my outboard gear, and it. I I love it. I love working that way. And it was really special to have musicians come to the studio and play again after the pandemic and all the remote working. So yeah, that was really cool. Anyway, let's get into today's episode. So I'm talking with Ivana Manley of Manley Laboratories. She is an incredibly inspirational woman. I I just, uh, yeah, really admire her. And I thought uh, I just enjoyed this conversation so much. There's loads of sage advice. Uh, if you don't know Manly Laboratories, they are specialist in valve equipment. So that's where the link is that I wanted to speak to her. So she talks about the way that valves work. She discusses the history of the company and sort of manufacturing gear that uh, emulates uh, sort of classic valve uh, outboard gear. So yeah, hopefully a really interesting episode for you all. Um, so let's dive in. Here we go, Ivana Manley. I am really pleased to be joined by Ivana Manley of Manley Laboratories. So you're in uh, Chino, California? Chino, not China, as we are <laughs> prone to say. Yeah. Chino, um, California. I, uh, I actually hadn't ever heard of Chino, California um, before reading. Well, then you probably haven't been incarcerated in Chino, California. There's a famous prison there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You might not want to willingly go to Chino. <laughs> um so you uh if you're listening to this you'll know um Ivana Manley from uh Manley Laboratories who um are makers of what is now becoming known as as sort of modern classic gear um it's a 
Yeah, that, I mean, there's no better way to put it there. I was going to extend on that, but there's nothing else more to say, is there? <laughs> that's that's what you guys I'll take do. it. Yeah, make incredibly high-end, beautiful gear that we'll all lust over for years to come. I think that's kind of <laughs> what it is. Um, so as I just said before I launched into this, the first question I want to ask you is something I heard in an interview you gave uh, a couple of years ago, that while you're working, you like listening to French radio stations uh specializing in sort of 60s and 70s psych music uh well two different stations ah, okay actually I've got, I've got okay mixed up. <laughs> um the one the one station that plays plays a wide variety of music and okay. sometimes does include some music from the 60s would be the french radio station fip fit okay say le fit <laughs> and uh, you can stream it online at fit.fr fit.fr yeah and um then it's also on uh, like TuneIn Radio and Sonos Radio and all that. I, oh, cool. I play my Sonos radios like all day while I'm working. I'm it the laziest me... audiophile ever <laughs> at this point. <laughs> well, I think it's kind of fun that you, when you have a radio stations on like that, it's like being on holiday and you're in the car flicking through the stations and it's all stuff you've never heard before. And I quite. Yeah. And they have a, a FIP world station that, you know, you just don't know what you're going to get next on that. And there's a, a dedicated FIP rock station and then just general FIP. And on the weekends I've found, of course, we've got a time delay from, I mean, from here to, from France to California, but uh, Sunday mornings in California, French radio Sunday night there is, man, that's, I think that's the best time to listen to FIP. But the other station that plays all the, the rarer psychedelic, music is called psychedelicized oh, cool. and that's another internet station you can get on all the streaming platforms and there's a lot of cool stuff on there and and they'll play like some obscure commercials from the day and all that it's kind of <laughs> nice. neat i think it's cool i'm, it's I'm gonna check it out and yeah i dig that i think a lot of it a lot of the people listening to this will be into that as well. So I, I'm, I'm going to check it out and I'll, I'm going to put a link to it too, because that sounds, uh, it sounds right up my street. Um, so I'd like to, to go back to, um, I know that you've told stories about the way that you got to where you are at numerous times. So hopefully we can sort of talk it about it. It does involve the sixties, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so hopefully we can, we can sort of, uh, get to the point where you're currently at um, and sort of work our way through, but then touch on a few things that um, particular things that I'd like to speak about as we go through that. So you grew up in Atlanta in a um, sort of a, an, an audiophile household. Is that fair to say? Eh, not audiophile, not compared to today's audiophiles, <laughs> but okay. no, my, my parents had a, a Fisher 500 C receiver and some two, AR2AX's speakers and a Gerard turntable oh, and, cool. and vinyl records. And I, I grew up playing the radio and playing records from a very early age. I was listening to Led Zeppelin when I was in kindergarten. I do remember that, you know. Oh, very cool. That's so a... I kind of skipped the baby records for the most part. I, I did, my first record player was a close and play, a little battery operated you know, oh, cool. you put the record on and you close it and it will play. Ah, that like makes sense. Like a little sense. briefcase luggable thing. Yeah, yeah. So you can't <laughs> fiddle with the record while it's turning round. <laughs> I suppose. 
Although we tried. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, they all say you're, you're sort of the product of what, well, not, not specifically, but you're the product of what your parents listen to. And I, I mean, I certainly am what I grew up listening to is what my mom and dad listened to, obviously. And, uh, yeah, Led Zeppelin's pretty cool to, to start on. <laughs> they were not listening to that. <laughs> oh, they were not. Well, that was your choice. Oh, hell no, no, that would be the devil's music, you know? Um, <laughs> No, my my father was listening to Beatles and Herb Albert and a lot of very syrupy, uh, syrupy kind of '60s instrumental music. I think Hank Jorkowski or some <laughs> piano player like that. I guess. Um, and then my mother, man, she listened to elevator music. You know, <laughs> like a thousand and one strings in your head, blaring through the house. Entered. Uh, intercom system all day you know it, it was like nurse ratchet music medication ah. time you know what i mean yeah yeah I, uh, I they'll watch exactly. cuckoo's nest and listen to that music again and that's that's what it felt like <laughs> so, so yours was a like a rebellion against that music. <laughs> i was i was playing you know top 40 rock and roll from you know age three on i, I can say i mean i remember hearing I remember hooking on to Elton John's Daniel because my best friend when I was three years old was a kid named Daniel and I used oh, okay. to walk around the corner to go visit him. So that's an early favorite song of mine. Um, lighter stuff. Yeah, like the Carpenters. I, I really enjoyed them in the early 70s. And um, but Led Zeppelin, that <laughs> that was my favorite song when I was in kindergarten. It was <laughs> Dire Maker. Oh, nice. Jamaica or whatever. How do you pronounce <laughs> that? Were you... Were you um... <laughs> Were you playing instruments at this? So what, what age were you starting to No, to they in school, they allowed us to join strings in fourth grade. Oh. And in exchange for that, we could skip social studies. So we all did that. <laughs> yeah. And then the cool kids could join band in fifth grade. So we all did that because we wanted to be cool kids. And then I, I got put on clarinet and I had, I had braces at the time. So... Um, I learned trumpet after I got my braces off in eighth grade and I played sax. I learned saxophone in seventh grade and I more, I played mostly woodwinds, uh, saxes and clarinets in school. That's what I was A clarinet was my first instrument actually. Nice. Yeah. I wanted to play saxophone and got told I had to start on clarinet. Um, it's good discipline. Yeah, and then never, to do that. never graduated onto saxophone. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I found a drum kit late. and I did that. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to play clarinet again, just for this nostalgic feeling. I think it'd be fun. It's cool. Um, uh, two of my best friends play saxes and clarinet, so I've got all the instruments out. And when oh, they amazing. come over, well, pre pre COVID times, that was. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'd all we'd all noodle around on the on the reed instruments. It was kind of fun. Oh, nice. Yeah. And um, so your, uh, your, was you, am I right in saying that your dad was the owner of Ampeg? Amps? My stepfather, your stepfather um, okay. had, had bought Ampeg from the founder Everett Hall and, um, Al Dore was my stepfather's name. Um, he bought that company in 66, I believe. And then, okay. um, saw that his kids, my step siblings, we're very much into rock and roll and they really try to push the company towards the rock and roll market. So that that's where this involvement with the sixties goes uh, because um, they developed the SVT during his time and the Rolling Stones were using it. And there was a third of the stage at Ampeg 
uh, at Woodstock that had Ampeg gear on it off the rotating stage. And um, it was a big deal. But then his wife died, his first wife died of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And it, it really threw his head for a loop. And he sold the company to Magnavox in 1972. And then he met my mom in 75, I believe. Okay. And he was broke by that time. And um, that's how that's how we got started with Big Al. <laughs> so it, it was after all the glory of the Ampeg stuff. There was, was nothing that... left from it except um, about... Five years later, he pulled some stuff out of storage. He had put in storage in seventy in 1970, basically. And that included about 200, you know, late 70s, at late 60s LPs and about 250, 45s, um, all, you know, from about 1966 to 1970. Wow. And that, I just grab those and absorb those. And I listened, that's what I was listening to all through the eighties. Basically nice. I kind of skipped the eighties and went right, <laughs> went, went right back to the the sixties for sure. There are some people who could say that that might be wise. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, um, that's why I, I dove deep into all that music at that time. So I'm still super fond of all that. Oh, cool. So there was no real influence in that, uh, sort of amplify your history and in, in your interest in music at all, or was that just sort of um, because some of those those psychedelic bands were customers and had given records to the kids, and I ended up with them. And yeah, they were into that. That that's about it. That in the stories that Dad would tell us, you know, just like meeting Johnny Cash or Eric Burden or whoever, you know, and, and it's like, oh wow, I love those <laughs> artists, you know. That kind of thing, yeah. just being kind of a fan yeah. from afar. But I never was a guitar or bass player, or you know, I, I my hand my hands are I can't even <laughs> my hands hurt too much. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that was the influence there. Did you have any sort of um? Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Wish to go into music at that point? Were you looking to to have a career in music? Well, I was super torn between um, being a, a band geek and studying music theory and just loving music and the mechanics behind it all. Um, I was torn between that and artistic proclivities, um, some might say. Um, <laughs> and so I, I didn't know, you know, if I wanted to go into some kind of graphic arts or something like that or go into something in music. And so I went to college and then decided to study music theory basically and and then that one day that one day that famous person came to class and that was bill graham of bill graham presents the famous 60s uh concert promoter who owned Fillmore east and west and all that and um he explained the music business to us in that lecture that one day and that that's when i made the decision i'm going to take the next semester off and go to california go find Bill Graham Presents and try to find a job there. So that was that one day. Amazing. So that just nailed it for me. That's so cool. I, I thought um, <laughs> I thought that you might say there was one day someone explained the music industry and that I decided to not do it. <laughs> what did he say that drove you to, to sort of make such a bold decision? Well, 
I just, I guess I felt a connection, like I, like it was achievable. Like I could go and find him. That was my dream anyway. Right. This is pre-internet. This is, you know, uh, 1988, 1989. So, you know, I, I, I'm like, this is it. That's, that's the light shining through. This is the opportunity. I'm going to go do this. And then I, I had a couple other friends in California and so I, I had some kind of safety net, if you know what I mean. And it's it's actually that safety net that kept me in Southern California, where I didn't I didn't go up to Northern California and never remet Bill Graham again. So I stayed in SoCal. I did some work for my uh, high school band director who had a small business here, and did some inventory work for him. And then um, my stepfather gave me those three names of some ex Ampeg guys, and I called those. The first guy didn't didn't pick up the phone. The second guy at Fender did, and then he's the one who introduced me to David and Luke Manley. And so um, it it wasn't. I it was just like I'm gonna. I'm young. I've got all the time in the world, literally, right in front of me. I'm gonna. Just pursue any open opportunities that open up and you just take you just follow the road. Amazing. That's what I did. And that's how I, I made my life happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, oh, it yeah. didn't just ha- I didn't just sit there waiting for it to happen. I walked down the road and that gate opened and I went down that road. I love it. I think that's a, uh, I think it's brilliant. And, and did you, so all the literature, literature surrounding it, <laughs> says that um, it's a sabbatical that you took from. So it was Colombia that you went to, if, yes. if, I'm, if I'm right. Did you have an intention to go back, or were you just? This oh, I it? had, yeah, a, a thousand percent had to go back. Okay. And that's one thing. After I started working with David Manley, and then, you know, he he just we would like go have lunch every day, and he was like really trying to persuade me to continue my classes out here. California and I'm like oh hell no I'm I've got three semesters left at this Ivy League school that <laughs> yeah. I got into and I'm gonna finish it's like my whole family and all my friends would kill me if I didn't get that degree even even though I mean the degree whatever but I have to complete it you know yeah well, yeah, yeah it's just That's... diligence and and gratitude <laughs> So did they hold yeah. the job for you while you went back and finished and then you traveled back again? Well, yeah. So what happened was, so David and I became um, involved and we decided to get married and I went back, finished school, and then we got married when I got done. Okay. So yeah, more than the job was there waiting for me, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Plus okay. I, I was starting to become very useful as a, as a very useful employee so of course they wanted me back yeah besides the other reasons i'm <laughs> i'm really interested in uh sort of your so vtl was the the name of the the company that you began starting work for is vacuum tube logic of america yes. incorporated yes. Ah, <laughs> to give it its full title <laughs> so they were making um tube amplifiers valve amplifiers mainly yeah mainly audiophile tube amplifiers and he had just started to uh, work on some pro audio products. So what happened in 1989 were the Scientologists were looking for some mic pre's to go with their Massenburg board they had just bought uh, for their big facility out in Hemet, California. So 
David and some other famous designers at the time submitted some, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> Mike Pre designs and his one, and they ordered 60 of them. And that was the birth of the Manly Pro Audio Division right there. <laughs> so I mean, that was a... pretty significant. In order for 60 of anything is, is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a strong start <laughs> for sure, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's a strong, <laughs> a really start. strong start. So then from there, that um, same kind of gain stage went into the the gain stage of a uh, Pultec kind of EQ we called the Enhanced Pultec. And mm -hmm. I worked on that with David just helping draw the schematics. That, that was one of my first technical jobs at the company after I learned how to, you know, to build boards and solder and screw stuff together. Um, and, and, and I remember we, David came to visit me when I was back at Columbia and we drove across the GWB and went to Teaneck, New Jersey to find Eugene Shank, who was a Pultec guy, but he, he just, he had closed the company down like 10 years before and or something. And he was not interested in anything we had to talk about. Oh, so really? yeah, because David was trying to offer him some licensing or royalties or something. And he's like, yeah, he just didn't want to do anything. So he sent oh. us along. <laughs> but I do remember that happening. I don't think he remembers it happening according to more modern um, uh, stories. You know, um, Steve Jackson, I think, has reported that, that Eugene Chank didn't remember that encounter at all. But I remember that encounter. I promise it happened. <laughs> I promise. Anyway. Oh. I may. Um, I'm actually. I'm. I'm hopefully speaking with Steve next week. So I'm. Oh, I might, cool. I might. I might pull We're him up good on buddies it. these days. Oh, he's awesome. Oh, cool. I, I respect him so much, and he's such a nice person. And his whole family. He seems he's um, great. He's very difficult to tie down. Um, so he's. Uh, he's on holiday. He's busy. Week. Yeah. yeah he, I don't think he has enough employees. I think he does <laughs> a lot of it himself. Oh right! I didn't know that. So I'll. I'll uh, yeah, I might ask. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited to speak to him actually. Yeah, um, he's a fine person. So uh, I'm, I'm interested in some of the, the more sort of technical things at the beginning of, of you at the company. So you what what electrical knowledge did you have when you first started working at VTL? Um, high school physics. And then one of the last classes I took back at Columbia, I think I took it after I went back. It might have been before, I forget now. I took a year of college physics as well. But... Okay. As far as vacuum tubes go, they they rolled a tube oscilloscope across the stage one day and said there used to be vacuum tubes in these things, and that was that. Amazing. <laughs> we did learn, you know, how a um, a TV tube works, you know, horizontal deflection tubes, and and did some calculations related to that. But that's it. <laughs> and and Ohm's law and. You know, given the parameters, I can tell you if you shoot a bullet out of that pistol, where the bullet will lie. You know, yeah. <laughs> so that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember that from my physics lessons. I remember not really feeling too engaged with. I found physics really interesting at school and didn't, um, but I didn't engage with it in a um, sort of in a physical way because I had no reason to. And then since becoming interested in in sort of audio, it suddenly there was a reason to understand it all. Um, so when you, when you first started work, was it more, it was it how you were applying your practical knowledge that you'd learned 
well, you were applying knowledge that you'd learned at well, school. Well, you know, just good math studies over the years mm-hmm. in high school, in one year or one semester of calculus in college. Um, you know, no, knowing how to deal with a simple algebraic equation. Yeah, yeah. To solve, you know, some simple parameters. And um, later on, after Excel came out, Actually, before that, with Lotus One Two Three, I was starting to learn about, you know, writing formulas in a computer. Um, but with Excel, I really embraced that as far as being able to um, easily write write something to automatically calculate a lot of things for me. Okay. Were so, you, was this was this something that? Uh, so obviously, you took the the opportunity to work there. Was it something that you were really eager to learn more about? Was electronics something? Because I get the feeling that you you weren't a hundred percent sure what you were going to California for, and then you. Oh no! What that that was my calling. I mean, oh, once cool. I landed in that company, I realized like that's I'm I'm meant to do this. Oh, I, I do like working with electronics. I love listening to music. I love making stuff sound better. I love learning about how to make stuff sound better. You know, what do you change to make that thing do that, or what 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 did you measure that you can hear and vice versa and exploring those relationships and and also in the business side i had a penchant for you know business organization and creating systems and methods and programs and coding databases and shit like that so <laughs> <laughs> you know um all of all of those things conspired to um locked me down into manufacturing gear and that <laughs> and then later the marketing aspect of it and getting into visual design um and and also designing the equipment you know and that's kind of like little metallic sculptures that play sound you know and making those things so i i would say that my career has definitely embraced a lot of my natural talents and interests oh so uh- Cool. <laughs> well, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, can you remember anything, any particular moments in the the early days where it felt like it clicked for you? Maybe working in a particular area of the company, or one thing where, um, I don't know, maybe like a a light bulb moment of you thought, well, I I love this. So maybe like the first when that that preamp order came in and you built those first set or whatever. Just was there any kind of moment that really stands out as as more significant than others? Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a dopamine junkie that way. So every little problem that I solve, you know, creates that hit and (laughs) there's a cabillion of those a day when you're in manufacturing, there's, there's all kinds of little tiny things to solve every day. So that, that kind of working in the weeds and working in the noise, I'm kind of used to that. My brain, it kind of thrives in that method there. Um, I, I can stay busy doing very small things all the time, <laughs> which is okay. But I, I remember, um, yeah, it was, must have been like 31 years ago or something. might have been 1990 or something. David came in and said, uh, this this guy called, uh, this. Uh, he's kind of famous, I think. And I'm like, oh, yeah, who? Oh, it's, it's Jackson Brown. I'm like, Jackson Brown. Oh yeah. He's really well known. He's, he's fantastic. You know, and David didn't know who the hell he was. <laughs> and 
So that was, and then I remember another time I was also a big Neil Young fan. And um, I remember at the first AES show in 1990, I was, this is back when we were all smoking cigarettes and smoking <laughs> them inside. Um, I was having a smoke break and I was sitting next to a guy in the lunch area at the convention center. And uh, it was John Nolan, who was like Neil Young's engineer. And I, I remember being like, Oh my God, there's my <laughs> link to Neil Young. Like I was so excited. And it's funny flash forward, you know, 32 years we're friends today. And I, I bought a wooden cutting board from him because he's retired oh, wow. and making cutting boards. Now John is <laughs> so <laughs> just like starting to run into people, I guess. I mean, I, um, it, it's cool. It, it's awesome. But you know, all this, like the quote famous people, they're, they're just like us. They, they're, you know, I don't but, know. I've taken down that barrier in my head all the same after, you know, meeting lots of quote famous people. It's, <laughs> they're just more people that are fun to hang out with. Yes. <laughs> well, I have the, uh, the similar feeling, um, doing this podcast, although I'm, a. Uh, much f- further down the down the ladder than you are, but meeting lots of people that that I I would you know for, formerly would have been just a name on like a website that I was reading about or in a magazine or something, and then you chat to them and you, they're just they everybody's normal. Everyone's <laughs> normal. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> um, so w- when when this this sort of order of the preamps came in, these sixty pre preamps that you were building, where what was the conversation from that point to starting to put it into these, uh, to, to these, like the Poltec EQs and, and there was, um, so there was a tube mic was one of your first products. How did all so, of that sort of evolve? Yeah. So, uh, David had come out of owning a studio complex in South Africa. That's where his prior work experience in the sixties and early seventies was. Okay. And then, he um, then he had an audiophile shop after that, I think, and he was also rebuilding leak amplifiers as an audiophile, and then eventually made his way to England and started vacuum tube logic of Great Britain there, um, building audiophile equipment, and then ended up back in, ended up in California eventually, and then got that order. But see, because he he initially came from the studio environment. It was kind of a natural thing to go back to that. So he, he had bought some, some gear out of England from various yard sales, as it were, studio yard sales. Um, you know, like he had a, a deca limiter that, you know, maybe Tom Jones had sang through or something, <laughs> or um, he had a diesel limiter that was a, a cassette Thing made by the Danish broadcast system and he, he really liked that unit and that's what the variable mu was based on ah. for instance so um, he yeah he just wanted to get into that world anyway so it was an, a natural progression and then also at the same time we were friends with Steve Hazelton who was Doug Sachs's engineer and Steve would come out a couple days a week and work with us so Actually, a lot of those early designs from those days were Steve's, oh, okay. or, or Steve, you know, largely contributed to the design. And that would be like the gold mic in the Repsi um, amplifying circuits. Um, 
just bits inside the circuits. Like um, David first started with cathode followers and Steve's like, have you tried the white cathode follower? It's a better circuit. So then everything switched to that and so on. So, but Steve Hazelton was incredibly important to the, to the first products for sure. Then, so th this is a sort of going off on a, on a side shoot and this, and this might be me putting my foot in my mouth massively, <laughs> but I, so as far as I understand, um, broadly speaking, the, the sort of the way that the technological, technological advances happened from sort of the sixties onwards. So they were using, uh, valve and tube technology through the, through the sixties and then transistor technology came in through the late sixties and it, and there was generally, uh, a, I move away from a valve technology through the 80s. It, I find it really interesting that you seem to start a company specializing in valve technology when, it, in, as far as my understanding was, it wasn't that popular. <laughs> so, they, yeah, tubes were all but dead in the audio world, for sure. There, there were still audio research and Conrad Johnson in the audiophile sector, and then uh, tube tech, and Summit Audio in the pro audio sector were the main gigs and tubes were all but dead. But David was a very loud and boisterous person and he wrote a tube propaganda book called the VTL book and okay. sold, I don't know, 30 or 50,000 copies of that or something. Um, and, and it was just a whole bunch of arguments for why vacuum tubes are better, you know, okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and his philosophies about why he chooses this or that in circuits. I have not read that book in a really long time, but uh, <laughs> I do have a copy. Um, so he, he was pretty smart, you know, like marketing tubes through making a lot of noise about it, you know. Okay. So in was the press, it... getting reviews and 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 being a bit controversial sometimes. Um, he he was sometimes like that train wreck you can't avoid looking at. <laughs> but so, it, so it you... did build the brand and built the enthusiasm for vacuum tube stuff. And he was um, kind of important with bringing tubes back to the forefront. Yeah, I mean now. I mean, I've been involved in this this industry for say sort of ten years or so, and it's all all I've known through that time has been tubes are the best. <laughs> you know, valve valves are uh, the best. Valves like we say, tubes rule. Yeah, precisely, exactly. So you clearly clearly played a huge part in in that revival. <laughs> there we go. Part one of my conversation with Ivana Manley. Uh, part two is coming next Tuesday. Uh, while I've got you here, I forgot to mention in the intro that I was obviously going to tell you uh, which isolated drums I'm being, I will send out on my mailing list. Uh, this week marks the 50th set of stems that I have made, which I am astounded by. I can't believe it. Uh, so uh, to celebrate, I was, I was going to make... Uh, do uh, like a big Beatles drop but I've had so much work in that I haven't had time to do it justice and um, so I've decided um, I had six Rolling Stones covers tucked away um, of which you uh, heard satisfaction in uh, this podcast uh, so I've decided to send all six out in a one -er, 
And if you visit my website, all you need is drums and visit the archive. You can find those there. Um, there's Get Off My Cloud, uh, Satisfaction, uh, and anyway, loads of others. You'll you'll find them all there. Um, so that just leaves me to say, if you'd like to get in contact with me, my email is joe at allyouneedisdrums.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that by visiting allyouneedisdrums.com and purchasing a lovely mug uh, and then uh, yep yeah, a huge thanks to my friend Joe Kane for the intro and outro music and my good friend David Henshaw for the lovely artwork he supplies every week now um, so yeah I will see you next Tuesday take care and goodbye goodbye